You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. It's uh, easy to tell when everybody's done with communion because you can hear like all the scotch tape noises die down and we know that we're done. Uh, happy to be with you this morning. Happy to have you here at Discovery with us online or here in the room. Uh, I was thinking this week, I read an interview, and I was thinking about a show that was on at the turn of the century where a popular rap artist teamed up with a group of mechanics, and they would find people with junked up cars, and then they would take their cars, and they would remodel those cars. And so they would take your van that had a bunch of issues, and then they would put a pool table in the back of that van, or an actual pool in the back of the van. You never knew what they were going to do on this show. But I read an interview with a guy that was actually on an episode, an episode called Seth's Nasty Nissan. And Seth, of course, had a nasty Nissan. It was uh, broken down. It was rusted. You know, the, the body needed a lot of work. The engine was busted. There was just a lot of problems Seth had with his Nissan. And in the interview, people were asking him, you know, about him being on that show and how it went. But the big reveal at the end of the show is they bring out Seth's Nissan, and it has been totally restored, totally remodeled. Now, instead of like the rusted paint job, he's got these airbrushed lightning bolts on the side, which everybody wants on their Nissan, right? He had two TVs in his car and a DVD player, which this is like back before every car had that, right? And so you're like, wow, a DVD player in the car. And then the icing on the cake for Seth's Nissan was they put a cotton candy machine in the trunk, which I can think of a million ways that that would go poorly, uh, but also it would be pretty cool to have cotton candy in your trunk. The problem was, and this is what brought me to the interview I was reading, the problem was that Seth said they never fixed his engine. So they brushed up everything on the outside of the car. He's got a cotton candy machine in the trunk, but his engine was still busted. So in order for him to actually use this car, he had to put even more money into it to fix the engine. Because it doesn't matter how many TVs or DVD players or airbrushed lightning bolts are on the side of your car if the engine doesn't work. Which in some way in my brain, I think brings us to Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark, we're in the book of Mark, have been in Mark for months and months, the book of Mark, chapter seven, where Jesus talks not about the engine of our car, but talks about our heart. So if you've got your scripture with you, whether it's in the, the journal we've got, uh, or just a Bible, it'll be on the screen. Also turn to Mark chapter seven. And here we see the Pharisees approach Jesus. Mark chapter seven, it says, when the Pharisees gathered to him some, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Now, let me just pause right there. They have traveled at this point to find Jesus. So tension is mounting. It's not like they just happen to be in the same place as Jesus. They went from where they were to find Jesus. They traveled to find Jesus. So they gathered to Jesus and they'd come from Jerusalem. And it says, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and, di and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And I have to wonder at this point, like, what do the disciples look like behind Jesus when they're confronted with this, right? Like, they start, like, shoving each other. They're like, I told you. 
Like I told, and Judas is like, surely not I, Lord, right? And then we have Thaddeus, like who's in the back. Thaddeus doesn't stop eating long enough like to actually wash his hands. Like he's probably got his hand in a bag of ruffles as they're saying this. So I wonder what the disciples are looking like. Is Jesus going to defend us? Like, is he going to be angry at us? Like, have we not been doing what we're supposed to do? Have we not been washing our hands properly? Which when we read this and hear that they're not washing their hands in a time when we are hypersensitive to things being sanitary and disinfected, we're like, oh, those disciples, like Jesus should have a word with them. But what they're talking about is not just the washing of hands like we might think of. They're not just talking about hand sanitizer. They're talking about a ceremonial washing that the Pharisees would have gone through. A ceremonial washing that they did before every meal, which is very elaborate, and you'd pour water on your hands for a certain amount of time, you'd flip your hands over, this whole ordeal. That's what the Pharisees were referring to. So whether or not the disciples are being sanitary, that's still left, you know, we don't exactly know. But what the Pharisees are talking about was this elaborate system. Now, if you go through the Bible, you can go cover to cover. You're not going to find in God's law instructions on washing your hands before you eat in the way that the Pharisees were talking about. What you will find is instructions for the priests and the Levites to wash themselves and go through a ceremonial cleansing before they would present an offering at the temple or before they would enter into the holy place at the temple. There was this elaborate ceremony that they would take part in that. And then what the religious leaders had done over the course of many years is they then adopted those practices of washing before a sacrifice to washing before a meal. And they'd made these entire books that involved laws like this that were not necessarily God's law, but was ways that the Pharisees, religious leaders, the scribes had expanded upon God's law and said, we should do this. So if you look at that, there's almost this attitude of the Pharisees saying like, well, this is what it takes for a sacrifice to enter the temple. This is what it should take for food to enter into me because I am that holy. I want to be that pure. I want to be that clean and undefiled. And so the Pharisees are talking about this kind of expanded law, this man-made tradition. And they're saying, why do your disciples not follow that tradition right there? And so remember, they're not breaking, the disciples aren't breaking the law of Moses, they're breaking a tradition of man. And so the disciples are waiting, kicking each other. How's Jesus gonna answer? Here's what he says in verse six. He said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Mounting tension. Jesus is starting to get very direct with the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. And then he says, as it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is carbon that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Now, there's a lot right here that we have to break down. Jesus first talks about this idea of carbon, this kind of tradition that had developed that the scribes and Pharisees had put on their books, had put in place. And it's this idea that a person could say, whatever money I would have used to support my parents, maybe in their old age or however else, that money is, is given to God. It's carbon. That's what that word means. So this money goes to God. And who do you think, like, then, of course, that money would go to the temple, right? It'd almost be like a temple tax. And so money that might have been used to take care of parents is now given over to the hands of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. 
So this is a law, again, we could go all throughout the Bible, and Jesus is pointing it out that this is not from the law of Moses. It's not from the law of God. God said, honor your father and mother, but here the Pharisees have come up with a way where not only are we not honoring our father and mother, but who benefits from that? If the money that would have gone to somebody else now goes to the temple, it feels to me that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, would have benefited from that tradition. So Jesus has now picked up on two examples, one example of where they have added to the law and one example where they have detracted from the law of God. And so then he's talking about this and he's really referencing what the Jewish people, some of the books that they had, like beyond the books we have in the Bible of the Talmud and the, the Midrash, which are these books that men had written with all of these laws that would say like, well, the Bible says not to work on the Sabbath. Let's define work. You can walk this far and no further. You go that far, it's work. And so that's how they would go about this. This is what it takes for something to be clean or unclean. This is a process you should go through before you eat it. Jesus is referring to those books when he's referring to this tradition of man. And he calls them out. In verse eight, he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. I want that verse to speak to us this morning. I don't want it just to be Jesus talking to the Pharisees. I want that to speak to us. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now we don't have the Talmud, I mean we do, but most of us aren't following those kind of strict regulations anymore. We don't have the, the Midrash, these other expanded things. But is it possible that we might have our own traditions, the traditions of man that maybe cause us to either add to God's law or detract from God's law? It's not going to be these books like the Jewish people had in that day, but what traditions might we hold to? I would submit that is it possible that maybe social media for us has become a tradition of man? where we go on there and we hear all these loud opinions, right? We go on Facebook, we hear what everybody's upset about, and we decide, like, oh, I should be upset about that too. Whether or not it's backed up in the Bible, whether or not the Bible agrees or disagrees with what a person says, we just adopt that and be like, oh, that's me then. Or if it's not social media, maybe a tradition that we might hold to would be the news we listen to, which is just more loud opinions of people that we just don't know, right? Like we sort of know them on Facebook. We turn on the news, don't even know these people. But if they're angry about this, I'm going to be angry about that too. Or if this other side, the other news channel, if they're angry about that, well, then that's the thing I like because I don't like those people. And we hold more to those traditions than to the Bible. And we go to those places, social media or, or network celebrities, to try and figure out how we should view a topic. Sometimes I worry that maybe our, our political tradition is something that we begin to hold to like we should be holding to the Bible and say, well, this is what my side says, then that's what it's got to be. And we don't go to the Bible to actually find out if that is a correct view coming from God. So we begin holding to the traditions of man more than to the law of God. Is it possible even though that some of us have adopted church traditions that are traditions of man and not of God? Well, they taught it to me when I was growing up in church. I never bothered to look it up, but that's what I'm going to go with. We have to be careful of what we decide we are holding to. We have to be careful of how we formulate our views and constantly ask the question, are my views being formulated from God's word or are they coming from something else? And we could pick any hot topic of the day and say, well, are my views on abortion, are they formulated by God's word or by the traditions of man? My views on sex and sexuality, is that coming from God's word or from the traditions of man? My views on immigration, 
my views on, on guns and, and violence, my views on personal finance, on public finance, where is it coming from? How have I formulated these views? Have I adopted traditions of men? Or am I going to the Bible and saying, I believe this because here's what the Bible says. I maybe don't even like it. I'm maybe not even a huge fan of it, but this is God's law. I want to go after it, not after man's tradition. And this is what Jesus calls out the Pharisees on. They have books and books of tradition that they have made up that allows them to add to God's word and detract from it. Is it possible that we sometimes fall into the same thing? So Jesus takes this whole discussion where he's talking to them about these traditions, man's law, God's law. And he sums up this discussion by quoting a verse from Isaiah chapter 29. And he says this in, in verse six of Mark seven, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Jesus takes this whole issue, he takes it out from being about what we eat or whether we wash before we eat or what laws we're following in the Bible, what behaviors we've adopted, and he talks about the heart. And he says, all of their worship, Isaiah said this, Isaiah, quoting Isaiah, Jesus says, their worship is far from me because their hearts aren't with me. Their worship is like lip service. They can go through all the, all the ordeal. They can go through all the dressing right, the washing right, approaching the temple right, trying to worship God right, but it's all a waste of time because their hearts aren't with me which I'm afraid can happen to us as well. We can come on a Sunday morning and we can give to the offering and we can take communion and we can sing the songs, but are our hearts striving to be near to God? Are our hearts striving to be like the heart of God? Or are we far from him? And could it be that some of the different traditions we have adopted have driven us away from him? And so Jesus talks about this idea of, of the heart, which is something we have to understand because it's a huge, huge theme in Jesus's ministry. When he gives the Sermon on the Mount, which we don't really have a telling of that in the book of Mark, but you can find it in some of the other gospels. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say, you've heard this be said, and I'll talk about the law of old. You've heard it be said that you shouldn't murder. And then he'll say, but then I say to you that even anger holds you being liable of judgment. You've heard it be said you shouldn't do this, but I say to you that, and he takes every action and makes it not just about what we physically do, but makes it about our heart, our intention. He says, you've heard it be said that you should hate your enemy. Well, I'm telling you that you should love your enemy. He takes it from our actions and puts it to our heart. And so it's a huge theme in Jesus's ministry, what we do with our hearts, the, the quality of our hearts. And it's also a big theme we'll find all throughout scripture. And so when we talk about the heart, we have to understand like what we're talking about. We're not talking about just that organ that pumps blood, right? Like that's not what Jesus means. He's saying your heart is far from me. Like, how's that even work? Like God made my heart. How's that work? He's talking about a bigger, a bigger concept than that, which you find in Proverbs. Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. In the Bible, our heart is this idea of the core of our being. And we get that, right? Because if you've ever read like a Valentine's card, you understand it, like, I give you my heart. I mean, if we're just talking biologically, that'd be gross, right? Like, I give you my heart. Like, I don't want it. Like, keep it. You need it, right? But our heart is more than that. Our heart is where our, our passion, our personality, where the core of us is from the things that we are. That's what they flow from is from the heart. And so Jesus begins talking about that entity, almost like talking about our soul in all of this. Now, with this, I'm reminded again of that idea of a car 
with an engine that doesn't work is worthless, right? That's our heart. We can put as much as we want, the, what, the right traditions, the, the best dress, the best actions. We can put the airbrush lightning bolts on our life, but if our engine is busted, if our heart is not right, then things are not going to function properly for us in our lives. My, uh, when I grew up, we had uh, the, the house I grew up in. It was a big house, and we had this giant tree outside that house. I think I've got a picture of it here. Uh, there it is. Yeah, and there's me sitting next to that tree. Little wee lad, just happy with this tree. But you can see in this black and white picture how massive that tree was. It was a big maple tree. gave us huge shade in the summertime, and just was, you know, we played around it. When the leaves would fall, like we're talking like a forest of leaves would fall in our yard. It was a whole ordeal raking those up. But this tree was a massive deal for us and our family, very special to us. But then when I got older and in college, a, a big storm came through and a large portion of the tree just fell. Like we're talking like major branches fell off of this tree. So my mom called a guy, an arborist, and he came out to look at the tree and he told her, he's like, this tree is dead. And we were dumbfounded. We we're like, this tree is not dead. Like every year the leaves change, they're beautiful. And then in the springtime, the leaves grow back and they're beautiful. New branches are growing on it. He's like, no, the tree is dead. And I don't know the exact reason this tree died or what caused it. I mean, it was super big, so it had to be old. Maybe it was just old age. But I do know that there are many trees, and often this happens to large trees, that suffer from something that they'll call heart rot, which is when the inside of the tree begins to die. And on the outside, everything looks fine. And I've got a picture of what that can look like from trees that have died from heart rot. You can see the outside looks fine, but inside it's getting hollowed out. It is dead. It is crumbling. And so the, the tree on the outside, it'll grow leaves. It'll look fine. But when a big storm comes, it knocks it over because the heart of the tree was weakened, because the heart of the tree was diseased. And I think this can happen to us. Everything can look fine and we can check the box and say, well, this is okay. This is going fine. Like I'm successful here. But then on the inside, we have a disease, we have a problem. Our hearts are far from God. And so after Jesus talks to the Pharisees about this idea of their traditions and God's law, and he talks to them about this concept of the heart, he turns to the crowd that is gathered around and he expands on this idea of the heart. So in verse 14, it says, he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, he, his disciples asked him about the parable. So now they're kind of behind closed doors and the disciples are like, hey, what was up with the disciples? And what did you mean about this stuff going in and going out? And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, which the middle school boy in me just has to acknowledge, right? Jesus talking about poop, okay? Just, we're past it. I just can't, it has to come out. Thus he declared, this is big, thus he declared all foods clean. And we can see the other New Testament writers after Jesus has died and resurrected begin to unpack this idea that now foods are clean, and we have to kind of dip back into some of those Old Testament laws that we referenced earlier of there were certain things that God had said the Israelites should not eat and certain things that they could eat. And if they were to eat these certain things, they'd be unclean, but other things were clean to them. 
And this law, there's a lot of layers to it. Some of it was just like basic, like you may not know, but this is not healthy for you and I don't want you to eat it, so it's unclean. Other parts, a large part of this was so that the Israelites would look different from the other nations around them. And the foods that they ate and the way that they dressed, God wanted them to look differently. But here Jesus says that foods are clean. He's saying it's not what goes in the body that defiles you which is a fancy word for like pollutes you. If you ever think of like a water stream, like you might think like, I don't know if I should drink out of that one because it's downriver from like this big power plant and I don't know what kind of stuff might be defiling that water. That's kind of the idea here. Jesus is saying, it's not what goes in you that defiles you, it's what comes out. So with this, Jesus begins moving past many of the Old Testament laws that God had set up specifically for Israel moving into the promised land, particularly with food. And so he's saying, it's not about what goes in you, it's about what comes out, which is why like now we are able to eat bacon, right? Because it's not about our bacon, Jesus says, it's about our behavior. It's not about what we consume, it's about what we produce. And so we can like get all happy here and be like, oh, well, so I do whatever I want, right? Like, let's go. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, okay? So let's see what he says as he continues, verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these are things that come from within and they defile a person. So if we look at some of this right here, and we, we kind of have to because it answers one of these questions where people often bring up like, well, why do you, if you're so worried about the Bible and God's law, well, why don't you obey all these dietary laws? But then you have these other laws. And it can look like we've just picked and chosen like what we, wanted to, what we decide to follow. Well, right here, if you watch, Jesus gives a whole list of things that he declares as evil. He says, from the heart of man come these evil things. All these evil things come from within. He's saying this list is evil. It's not the food that is evil. It can't make you evil. It's your actions that make you evil. And so some of the highlights, he talks about sexual immorality, which is kind of a shorthand for all of the sexual ethic that God set up for them in the Old Testament. If you want to go through and just have some really exciting and gross reading, you can go to those areas of Leviticus and and Deuteronomy and Numbers, like where God talks about the sexual law that he set up for Israel. I mean, you're going to find things that you're like, were they, was that a problem? Like God had to tell them not to do that? I don't know. I didn't even know you could do that. So all of that, though, the, the Jewish people kind of just adopted and would term that as pornea. That would be what it is in Greek. And you can figure out what words come from this idea of pornea. But that's that whole realm of God's sexual ethic that he set up for them. And then Jesus talks not just about sexual immorality, but theft and murder and adultery, which those are in our 10 commandments, right? Those three are there. And then he talks about sensuality, which was a Greek word that is sometimes, you know, translated as fornication, but it referred to this idea of like excessive lust or sleeping around. So Jesus calls out all these things that are listed in the Old Testament and he identifies them as evil. And so we know that it's these actions that pollute us, that defile us. But we have to be careful here because I was picking and choosing just now, wasn't I? Like I was just going to the ones that might just stand out to us. But right there next to these ones that we talked about, right there are all kinds of other things. Right there with murder is slander. Again, we get back to social media, right? Like that is 90% of social media is slander, just talking bad about people. Right next to adultery, Having sex with someone who's not your spouse, right next to that is coveting, 
wanting something that isn't yours. Right next to theft is deceit. So lying, Jesus is putting in the same list as stealing. Sexual immorality is on the same list as foolishness. So if we look at this list and we read through these things that Jesus said, this is what defiles a person. These actions are what defile a person. If certain ones stand out to us in bold, maybe we've started to adopt some traditions of men. And maybe we've started detracting from the gospel, from the Bible and saying, well, these ones here that clearly describe everyone, well, those don't apply to me, so I'm off the hook. We're not off the hook, right? In fact, if you want to say that you're off the hook, like you can just go ahead and check the box next to deceitful because you've deceived yourself and that was foolish. So check that box too. All of these things, Jesus saying these actions, that's what defiles a person. And so we're left thinking like, well, then who is not defiled? I mean, maybe it was a little bit easier when you just say, well, if I don't eat these things, then I'll be clean, right? I'll be pure. Because here Jesus gives us this list and it looks like everyone comes out defiled. In fact, Paul addresses this in Colossians 2.20. He says, if, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you to submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to all the things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul's saying your behavior, your actions, you can try and appear one way, but it's not actually going to help you resisting temptation. It's not gonna actually help you fighting evil. So then what's the solution, Paul? What's the solution, Jesus? What do I need to do to make sure that I'm not defiled, that I'm pure, that my heart is near to God? And it's not just about what I eat, like I can't just take this out of my diet and be okay. The Bible shows us that our solution is that we need a new heart. The Bible shows that it's not our actions, not our behavior, it's our heart that is the problem. In Ezekiel, God is speaking to the Israelites and he says this in verse, uh, chapter 36, verse 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. We read about that spirit at Pentecost in the book of Acts, right, as it invades Jesus' followers. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I love that picture. This idea of just an old, crumbled heart, a heart of rock, a heart of stone, and replacing it with a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How can we live more like Jesus did? We have to get a new heart. And how can we do that? If we go back to that passage in Colossians where Paul was talking earlier, Colossians chapter two, if we turn the page to Colossians chapter three, which is your homework for the week, spend some time in Colossians chapter three this week asking the question, how can I get a new heart? And here's some of the things that Paul highlights. He says, we've got to put to death the things of the flesh. We've got to die of the things to the flesh. We gotta to put to death the old self. It's like, I'm a different person and that person is dead. We see that in baptism, right? It's like a person's getting buried. But then he says, put on the new self. Just as a person being baptized comes up from the water. So we die to the old self. We put on a new self and then we let the peace of Christ dwell in our hearts. We let the confidence that Jesus has died for us 
dwell in our hearts. We let the, the peace of Jesus dwell in our hearts and we let his word dwell inside us. And his word cannot dwell inside of us if his word is foreign to us. This cannot be in me if I'm not interacting with this word often. And so as we do that, we begin to lean more on this word, on God's law and not the traditions of men. We begin to peel away those layers of confusion of, oh, this is what a Christian is supposed to look like and really get it down to this is what Jesus looked like. And then Paul says, in a word, if we just took that whole chapter of Colossians 3, in a word, we submit to Jesus. We do what Jesus wants not what somebody else says. We do what Jesus wants of me, not what I want of myself. And those are steps for us to get this new heart. But do you see right there that most of that work isn't just me doing it, it's God has done it. If we look again at that list of all the things that make us impure and think it's hopeless, it's not hopeless for us. Because Jesus' death on the cross allowed us to have that new heart. And our job is just to submit to him. There's a, a story in the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. It's the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's this boy named Eustace who the whole time throughout this book, Eustace has just been the worst. Like nobody likes to hang out with him. Like he's, you know, just he's the worst. And Eustace, they get to this island on this journey and Eustace finds this, this treasure and he finds this bracelet in this treasure. He puts this bracelet on and he's gotten all greedy about this treasure and he puts a bracelet on and the next morning he wakes up and he feels the bracelet is really tight around his arm and he's like trying to get it off. He can't get it off. And when he looks down, he sees that his arm has changed, that it's not a little boy's arm anymore. It's a dragon's arm. And then Eustace looks at his reflection, maybe in some water or something, he realizes he has turned into this dragon. And he, he can't get this ring off his arm. His arm is swollen up under the ring and he cannot change himself as much as he tries back into being a little boy. He scratches with his dragon claws to take the scales off and some of them fall away, but as much as he can try, he can't turn himself back into what he was meant to be. But then Aslan comes on the scene. Aslan, which is a great example of Jesus in the books of Narnia. Aslan comes on the scene and he takes the dragon and he starts clawing away at the dragon's scales. And this time, they fall to the ground. And then layer by layer, he claws off more and more of the dragon's scales. And as Eustace describes this to his friends later on, he says, it hurt. It hurt bad, but it also felt good because I was being freed from this. And slowly, Eustace was changed back into that little boy. He was given that heart of flesh. And his heart of stone was no more. And then Aslan picked him up and threw him into some water. And all of that was washed away from him. Man, that is a great picture for us of what it looks like to be given a new heart. We can't do it ourselves. Only Christ can. And so we need to draw near to him. We need to dive into his word and ask God to give us that heart. Because our actions aren't going to cut it. It's what we produce, not what we consume. And so only God can change our heart from which everything else flows. So my hope this morning as we leave here today is that we would all collectively ask God for that new heart. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that with your son's death on the cross, we have access to a new heart. We thank you that we're no more tied to these behaviors and these regu regulations of what we eat and what we do. 
But because your son died for us, God, we can have forgiveness of sin and freedom from the law. But God, we know too that our actions can mess us up, that there are things in this world that can defile us, that can detract us from the life you want us to have, that can wreck ourselves, wreck our families. And God, we all fall to those things, but you love us the same and you were willing to die for us the same. And so God, I pray that this morning you would replace our hearts of stone, that you would chip them away, that you'd peel off the layers that we have adopted of man's tradition, the ways that we have gotten away from your instruction, your word. And I pray God that you would draw us back and give us a heart of flesh, a heart that was won by your son's death on the cross for us and a heart that will be near to you. We ask this in your name, amen.